0: The word for today comes from Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates. Let's pray together. Lord God, you reign over heaven and earth. And we praise you for that. Lord, it's true for us to sing Our God Reigns because you are God, number one, and you do reign. And Lord, you have made yourself known to us. You took the first step. You took the initiative. You broke into our lives and you have made yourself known to us. You've given us your word. And in it, you have revealed the way in which we should live. You've revealed the fact that you are almighty and powerful. And you've revealed your plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. And through him, his death and resurrection, we are your people. And we praise you for that. Even though, Lord God, you are transcendent above the heavens, you still dwell with the lowly and the contrite. You draw near to us. You have a relationship with us because we are your people. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand who we are as your people this morning. And more than that, Lord God, I pray that we would hear from you. In my preparation, I've never felt more strongly that we desperately need to hear from the Almighty God in all manners of life. So I do beg you now, Lord, that any words of mine alone would fall away and that your words would stick with us this morning. Lord, shape us into the people you want us to be shape us into the church that you're calling us to be according to your word as you revealed yourself to us so that we would be your treasured possession and that we would be able to proclaim by living out in the decrees that you have made for us to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And Lord, give us success, I pray, in handing and passing this down to the next generation. Lord, I thank you for... Autumn Rose Ricks and all of the other children in this church that have been born here to parents and to families. Praise you, Lord God, for the children that you've given us, that you've entrusted to us, Lord. May we steward them well, I pray. Lord, let your kingdom advance. Let the gospel go forth so that all the nations would come to know you. Lord, we long for the day when Your glory would be over the earth as the waters covered the seas. And that's what, to some extent, this sermon is going to be about. So I pray that you would just help us. Help me be faithful to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I have two weeks to stand up here before you all, and I'm approaching it as an opportunity to unpack the vision of family discipleship in this church. I love children and I love youth and young adults and I long for them to grow up into maturity so that they would make Christ their God and that they would serve him and God's global purposes and further the kingdom. I love parenting and the indispensable role that it is in relation to the kingdom of God. And I love Families and the possibilities for fellowship that exists in them, the possibilities for growth, and the possibilities for fruitfulness, ministry fruitfulness, fruitfulness and kingdom fruitfulness that exists within families. And therefore, I've spent a lot of time over the past several years of my life trying to most effectively accomplish my goals of raising up children who hope in God and are committed to God's global purposes throughout the earth. Many of you know that I'm the pastor of family discipleship here at this church, and the title was selected intentionally because it summarizes the essence of what I'm after in my ministry. As of right now, the mission statement for family discipleship is to equip parents to disciple their children according to the biblical revelation of Jesus Christ. And I just want to kind of unpack that this morning and show you how I got there. And I do want to say a word about mission statements in this church and how they get born. As a leader in this church, I can say that it is Pastor Charlie's and my full conviction that ministries and mission statements and all of the like are born out of and shaped by and sustained by the word of God. We don't fashion ministries and mission statements in this church to our likings and things that sound really catchy as much as we are after the biblical patterns upheld in Scripture. And there, as we see those patterns, we shape ministry and we make mission statements out of that. So mission statements are born out of the Word. And that leads me to why I chose Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 for this message this morning. And Lord willing, I will preach on this again next week as well and draw out some of the practical applications. Because I've found that no passage is more complete or more applicable or more relevant or more informative to the end of discipling children and parenting and to the end of family and to the end of the kingdom of God. So let's look at Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So I plan to spend the first sermon here looking at the context of this passage and when we see it. In the larger scope of the Pentateuch, I hope that we will gain two things. Number one, a deeper conviction as a church as to why it is so important, and indeed it's indispensable, to have a family discipleship ministry that targets the next generation of believers, of people. And number two, why households and parenting are so important and integral in the kingdom of God, the larger picture and how Households relates to the big thing of the kingdom of God. So Deuteronomy six four through nine. This passage is commonly called the Shema, and according to the Dictionary of Biblical Studies, it defines it this way. Literally, it means hear. The opening word and thus the title of a daily Jewish prayer. The words of a prayer are found in Deuteronomy six four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. The Shema is not only a prayer, but a creed of Jewish belief, that God is one, that one is to observe the commandments, and that God will reward those who observe his Torah and punish those who do not observe it. These words are often the first words that, a Jewish, that Jewish children learn. Many Jewish martyrs recite this as their final words. So the Torah is also known as the Pentateuch. Perhaps you guys have heard that before. And the Pentateuch literally means five-part book or five part law. In fact, the Pentateuch was designed to be understood as one book with five different chapters: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So five chapters of one book. So what is so fascinating to me about the Pentateuch, it is actually the foundation and the pattern of the rest of the Bible. In the Pentateuch and in the story of the Pentateuch, we see the purpose of mankind revealed. And we see a pattern of the salvation of God. And we see also a pattern for Christian living as well. There's many things that we can see in the picture of the Pentateuch. And therefore, it is absolutely crucial that we as New Covenant believers, as Christians, know the Torah very well and understand it well. In this sermon, I don't want to spend a lot of time trying to draw lines between what does and doesn't apply to us as members of the New Covenant. Now, this is kind of a side note here, and if you guys would just stay with me. What I did in my original preparation for this sermon was I tried to understand that I'm talking about the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 6. And they are the old covenant people of God, and now we are all in Christ. There's some significant changes that happened as God revealed himself throughout the redemptive history of the Bible. And now we, as the people of Christ, are not exactly the same as we're not in the exact same boat in every single way as the people in in the old co- in the old covenant in the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 6. So what I did is I tried to draw all the lines and the nuances of what does apply here and what doesn't apply to us and so on and so forth and at the end of it I just realized it's really tedious and it would just confuse us all a lot more. So what I do want us to do as we approach this passage this morning is I want us to all understand that the Pentateuch and the story of Israel is very similar or a pattern of Christian life. Just like the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, we all see the the resemblance to that and the fact that we were enslaved to sin. That is a picture of our enslavement to sin. And the Israelites were led out through the Red Sea and the salvation of God. And just like us, we were led out to a new birth through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the Israelites were on their way to the promised land. They were going to inherit the final promise of the covenant that God made, just like we are right now, on our way to the promised land. And we await the day when Jesus Christ will come down and redeem his people. So in that way, I want us to understand that The Old Testament people of God relate very much to the New Testament people of God, namely us. And that's how I want us to draw application from what I'm going to say this morning to our lives as we live them in Christ. There's one more step I would like to take before I get into Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, the Shema. I would like to go back and run through the history of Israel and put into clear picture where they're at in Deuteronomy. I want you guys to see where they're at in Deuteronomy and I want to see how they got there. It's very important. The fact that they're there is very important. It depends very much on how they actually got there in the first place. So here's how the Pentateuch is divided up and I found this very interesting. The book of Genesis covers a time span of 2,600 years. So in that we read of the beginning of mankind we read of how the heavens were formed and how the creation was made. We read of the purpose of man. And then in 12 through 50, chapters 12 through 50, we focus in on Abraham and the patriarchs and how the line of Israel was passed on. And God comes to Abraham, makes a covenant with him. He totally picks Abraham. He's probably a pagan worshiping false gods and says that you are going to be my treasured possession. He tells him that I'm going to make a covenant with you you are going to have a family as numerous as the stars in the sky, um, and you will have a land to dwell in too. You will be a blessing to the nations, and you will be blessed as you follow me. So that's kind of what Genesis is about, and it goes through Exodus 1 there, covering the years of slavery. Exodus 2 through 4 is the final tail end, 40 years, that the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. And then Exodus 4 through 5, that one chapter covers 40 years And that's where Moses is fleeing to Midian after he strikes the Egyptian. And then in Exodus 5 through chapter 19, that covers a period of three months. And all during that time, that includes the the Exodus, the plagues, the leading out, the Passover, all of these things going through the Red Sea. Those are all included in a three-month time period. And God brings them then to Sinai in Exodus 19. Now, in Exodus 19 to Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, that is one year time period. There's one year that's covered there. And if you think about it, that's a huge section of the Pentateuch. And that's one year, and that is where God stops to give them his law. And this is very, very important for this message. The pattern is that God redeems, he brings the people out, and then... He takes time to put his marks on them, as it were. He stamps his character upon his people, and he does so by revealing himself and his character, and he does so by revealing his law to them. He makes the initiative. He comes out of heaven, and he takes this people that would otherwise be idol worshippers, and he reveals the way that he wants them to live, by speaking his law to them. In Numbers 11, or Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, on through Numbers 36, the Israelites are at Sinai, and they're supposed to go to the land of Canaan, and it was supposed to be a two-week trip, give or take. And that turns into 40 years. Isn't that amazing? A two-week trip turning into 40 years. Why? Well, because they grumbled, and they complained, and they doubted the goodness of God. And, as it went... The whole generation, all of those who were 20 years and older that grumbled in the wilderness, did not make it to the land of Canaan. That leaves us with the book of Deuteronomy. So now the people are at the outskirts of the promised land. They're about to go in. And there's the generation 20 years and younger. And what they need is a repetition of the law. They need to be taught the ways of God before they go into the promised land to take possession of it. So Moses, that's what Deuteronomy means literally, second law. It's a repetition of the law. And it's to the younger generation that that uh, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. I suppose they didn't make it in the wilderness of 40 years since they're 20 years old and younger, but you guys get the point. So I did some math. 187 chapters total in the Pentateuch. And a total of 58 of them are at Sinai. That's interesting. So 58 chapters at Sinai devoted specifically to teaching to make sure that the people of God were a certain way and revealing God's character so that they would be able to follow him as their God. And then I just did some estimations, and about maybe 20 chapters or so, maybe this isn't a great estimation, but about 20 chapters, give or take, in the book of Deuteronomy, specifically devoted to law, teaching, instruction. And if you tally that together, it it equals 78 out of 187 chapters total that's devoted to God teaching his people on how they should be as his chosen possession. So it's worth pointing out here that the Hebrew conception of law, their attitude was not quite like ours is today. Today, I think that if we dig deep, we'll agree that we tend to have maybe a negative kind of view of of law. Uh, We we think of it as legally binding stipulations, and it almost has some negative connotations, and it sounds kind of harsh and and cold and, and demanding to us. However, the Hebrews understood it more as instruction, and that's what it was. The laws of God were essentially his instruction to his people. And that's how we should understand the laws of God. So this is why the Psalms, after David and other psalmists like him, lived by the laws of God, they came to say this about them. Here's two examples out of many. Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Psalm 119.72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So what is more is that these laws were part of the covenant that God enters into with his people. Now, we can understand covenant generally as a, as a contract or a treaty that's made with two parties. And each one of those parties has specific roles that they have to carry out for the purpose of having a relationship. God wants to have a relationship with his people. And therefore, he agrees to do certain things and he expects that his people do certain things in return. And this is a general way how we can understand the covenant between God and his people Israel. God chose Israel to be his treasured possession. He promised them to be their God. And He promised them to give them a numerous nation. And he also promised that he would give them a land in which they would be blessed and a blessing to the other nations. And in turn, the people of God were to understand and obey the laws and instructions of God. And by keeping them, it was a form of worship unto him and a form of gratitude and thanksgiving for his salvation and delivering them. And in keeping them also, they would experience the blessings, the higher ways of the true living God, they would experience that. But of course, the flip side is, if they failed to keep the covenant, if they failed to keep their part, they would experience the punishments and the judgments for not doing so. So listen to the words of God in Exodus 19:5 and 6. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God redeems the Israelites out of slavery. And when they are out, the means by which he sets them apart as a holy nation is he gives them his law. So with the motive of making Israel into his treasured possession, a kingdom and a holy nation, God brings his people to Sinai and he spends a year with them giving them his law. and Exodus 20 on through the end of the book, all the way through Leviticus and into Numbers, God is revealing himself, giving his people the law by which they should live by, the law by which they would be set apart and marked as his holy nation and his treasured possession. Perhaps you've heard the term, let scripture interpret scripture. This is a, a principle that helps us to interpret and make sense of the Bible. We want to make application from the Bible, and we also want to make sure that we're reading it the right way. Well, in 1 Peter 2.9, this is a very important verse in the life of this church. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you guys see the resemblance there between Exodus 19, 5 and 6 and 1 Peter 2, 9? Peter is addressing new covenant believers. He's addressing us, the saints, in Christ Jesus. And he probably, very clearly, I think, he has Exodus 19, 5 and 6 in mind when he writes this. But the difference is that he adds the purpose statement. The purpose statement that reads, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. It is God's goal, we have to understand this, that it is God's goal for us as Christians, and it was God's goal for the Old Testament people of God to display the greatness of God as they lived according to the way that He revealed Himself to be. It was his goal that we proclaim his excellencies as the living God, as he revealed himself and he revealed his law to us in the face of other pagan nations. So the question now becomes how? How do we and how were the Israelites supposed to demonstrate and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light? How are we supposed to do that? And in an answer, I think I've pretty much already answered this, but the word, I want to really press that into us today. The word was the means by which we would be distinguished and by which the Israelites would be distinguished from all of the other nations who followed false idols. Notice the pattern in the Pentateuch. God redeems his people first. He acts and pulls them out of slavery. Pulls them out of bondage. And then he reveals his word to them. He shows them first of all, and if you read the Ten Commandments, the very first thing, before he commands them anything, he says, I am the Lord your God, who called you out of slavery. He says, I am the Lord your God. And the proof of that was, I actually did something. I actually demonstrated my power over the mighty Pharaoh. I made him look like an ant on the sidewalk. And then he goes into instructing his people. Therefore, because I am your God, live in the ways of your God. Live in the ways that I reveal for you to live. And upon living that way, we prove and we proclaim the excellencies of him, his superior ways as the living God. So unfortunately... Immediately after the Israelites leave Mount Sinai, like I mentioned before, they've got a a two-week trip or so before them to take the land of Canaan. Two weeks, and that turns into 40 years. Isn't that amazing? And they grumble, and they dispute, and they complain that Moses is their leader, and why didn't you make me leader, and why should I listen to this guy, and so on and so forth. And they doubt God's goodness. They doubt his promise. They doubt his power to save them and to subdue the people in the land of Canaan after they've just witnessed his miraculous power, after they've just heard his law. So two weeks becomes 40 years. And all of those, like I said earlier, 20 years old and older, never made it to the promised land. They died in the wilderness. And that's how we get to the book of Deuteronomy now. Moses had the next generation on the outskirts of the promised land, and he had the responsibility of re-educating them, as it were. In order to prepare them as the people of God, there was an essential piece that needed to be in place, and that was they needed to have the commands of God. They needed to know who God was, and they needed to understand how they should live in the promised land. In a sense, they were not fit yet to inherit the promised land. They weren't fit to be the people of God in his land. And the way by which they were fit for heaven, so to speak, is by understanding and following and abiding in the laws and the commands of God and in the instruction of God. So we get through Deuteronomy, and as I said before, Moses takes the responsibility of educating the next generation. Because it's absolutely essential that they do this before they get into the land. So in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, we read again the Ten Commandments, and he starts him with the law. And then in chapter 6, we get to the point where we hear, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, in the ancient Near East, I always asked, what is he getting at with that verse exactly? Never quite understood. But upon studying this, I understood that in the ancient Near East, which was the cultural setting of the Israelites. Now, so those are surrounding, those were the influences on the Israelites at the time. Worshipping multiple gods was extremely common. They had a god for the sun, they had a god for the moon, and et cetera, et cetera. They had gods all over the place, and they bowed down and worshipped these idols. And this might explain why, so closely after the Israelites are redeemed from slavery, what do they do? They get their earrings together, they throw it in a pot, and they make a golden calf, and they bow down to it. How do we make sense of that, other than the fact that that's exactly who they were? That's what they would have been. That was the cultural influences that shaped them. And that is probably why when God reveals his Ten Commandments, number one and number two, right off the bat, he stresses this with very strong emphasis. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself any graven images to bow down towards. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Moses is saying that to the people that Yahweh is now our God. This is our God, and we are His people. That's what He's saying. All the other gods are false. He's saying that Yahweh is the only God, and He's also saying that there is only one true God. All of the rest of them are false. They are not God. Isaiah 46 9b. I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. So Moses is not only saying that Yahweh is the only true God, but he is also saying that the only true God is now our God. Naturally, the implications of this was that Israel would do away with all of their other worship of other gods. They would do away with any kind of false idol worship, and they would only worship Yahweh alone. And they must do so by keeping his covenant, by keeping his commands as he marks them as a people. And gratitude and in worship to him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not only is God the only true God, but God is one in and of himself. What does this mean exactly? I used to think that this was a verse that relates to the the Trinity, getting at that. And I think it has more to do with the unity of his identity. In the ancient Near East, again, understand this. That it was very common for, say, one tribe over here to worship a particular god. And they would set up a shrine and so on. And worship him for a set of characteristics and attributes that he had. And, um, and then another tribe over in another area, they would set up a shrine to that same god. But they would worship different qualities, different attributes, different characteristics. They would have a different identity. Which means that the same God in two different places in the land could have two different identities. Not so with Yahweh. Yahweh is one God. And therefore he should be worshipped the same wherever he is. And this leads to the next verse as well. Just as God is one so his people are to be unified and distinguished as they follow the commands of this true God who has revealed himself to them. So just as God is one in his identity, so as his people follow him as this identity, they would be marked as well. The next verse, Moses addresses the corporate gathering of Israel. Keep this in mind. They're all together. And Israel, um, he says to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now that word you and your in the Hebrew language, the Hebrew word there is a singular pronoun, and it's used to address one individual person, which means that the whole gathering of Israel is being addressed in the singular, meaning that the corporate whole of Israel was to have an individual identity. So you have many people with one identity after their God, Yahweh. And this corporate identity, again, was to be achieved in how they abided in the commands that their God gave them to live in. But just as God is one, so the people of God are one as they live according to his teachings. And by following his ways, they prove that, number one, Yahweh is their only God. And number two, they prove that Yahweh is the only true God, period. Number three, they prove that their God is worthy to be loved with their entire being. And number four, they prove that their God loves them and is worthy to be followed as well. That there's a relationship there that it's not just we bow down and hope that the sun god does something for us, but there's a relationship, and it's a loving relationship. So think about the significance of what's going on here for just a minute. In the book of Deuteronomy, God is calling and aligning his people by his law so that they would be a witness and a blessing to the nations who worship false gods. As they followed God's instruction, they would be a blessing in the land— And they would be prepared to live in the land. And the result would be the living proof that their God is real and that their God is good. The Israelites were pulled out of a dark lifestyle of idol worship. False idol worship. And they were called to live in the marvelous light of the living God as he revealed his commands to them and made his way known to them. And I can't stress enough. I really want us to get this point right here. Unless God took the initiative to reveal himself through his laws and his instruction to his people, they would have went on in darkness. Totally convinced of that. The natural inclination of all mankind is idolatry. And God's intervention with his laws would be the basis upon which his people would be called out of darkness and distinguished as the children of light. I want to say that last verse again. God's intervention with his laws would be the basis upon which his people are called out of darkness and distinguished as the children of light. So, to put it in other words, the word of God in our lives for perpetuating the kingdom is absolutely indispensable and totally important. So here we are in Deuteronomy. The law of God is being repeated so that God's people don't live on in darkness. And it is in this context now that we get to hear this common instruction Parents and I would argue to the whole community of Israel has a responsibility for the next generation. We hear, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. The reality is, God was creating a unified nation who would become the kingdom of God in the land of Canaan. And the way that he preserves it and plans to perpetuate the kingdom is by instructing the people of Israel to hand it down to their children, to the next generation. And thus, in that way, we as the community, as adults, and more specifically as parents, are acting, taking the very initiative that God took when he revealed himself to us, we act as the representatives of God and we take that same initiative and reveal the ways of God to our children. And if it doesn't happen, they will not know God and they will not be able to live after his ways. So therefore, that's why I say it is absolutely indispensable that us as a church are committed to handing down our knowledge of God and our faith to the next generation. So let me summarize here what I've been getting at. What I'm saying is that because I think the Bible is teaching this, it is that God uses you to teach your children as one of the primary means of his redemptive purposes. One of the ways that God brings about salvation from one generation to the next is through successfully the community of faith handing it down to the next generation. And again, if you're not a parent in this room, you are part of this community and to some extent you have responsibility in these matters. God uses your home as the strategic structure in preserving and perpetuating the people of God. So the teaching of your children, our children, in the ways of God, will determine whether or not they will worship idols or worship God. That's a kind of a heavy statement there. But the reality is, unless our children are made known of the ways of God, they will naturally go on in their sinful inclinations, and that is not towards the true God of heaven, but it is towards whatever idols they might fashion in whatever way in our 21st century here. They will worship something or someone. Every man is wired to worship something. And the question is not if they will worship, it is what they will worship. And without the ways of God revealed to them, they will not bend their knees to Jesus Christ in adoration. And that's a weighty thing. And that's why it's so important for us as a people here, as a church, to spend our lives passing this on to the next generation so think about this depending on how you look at it the book of deuteronomy really shouldn't exist you can make a case for that what if the people of israel left sinai and they were faithful and they responded to god and they marched straight to canaan we would think in hindsight that seems like the logical thing to do go take the land right God promised it. And you saw him part the sea. Go for it. Wouldn't you want to dwell in a land that flows with milk and honey? What if that would have happened? And again, I think the fact that it didn't just proves the fact that their heart is so bent away from God. And thus, God needs to reveal himself over and over again. But that's not what happened. They rebelled, they complained, and they wound up dying out in the wilderness. A two-week trip turned into 40 years. And because they didn't pass on the commands, the the next generation needed to be re-educated by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. God intervened and he instructed the Israelites and he preserved the identity of the kingdom of God by passing it on to their children. So, in summary here, I just want to make two points of summary and then three conclusions and then we'll be done. The means by which the people of the living God are brought out of darkness And out of idol worship is the word of God. If God would not initiate a relationship and reveal his way, man would helplessly go on in some form of idol worship. So the word of God, God revealing his way, God initiating a relationship and bringing out of darkness and into light and then instructing them in their way is the basis for that. Number two, parents in the community of faith are commanded to instruct their children in the laws of God so that they would be saved from idolatry and the kingdom of God will be preserved and perpetuated. So those are the two points of summary there. And now in conclusion, I just want to draw these three things. Number one, because the preservation and per- perpetuation of the people of God depends very much upon whether or not it is successfully passed on to the next generation, passing it on is still indispensable pursuit and a high responsibility that we have as the church of God, as the people of God. I'm not just saying that the ministry of family discipleship is so important so that I can feel more significant in my role. It's not what I'm getting at here. I'm saying that that's why I'm here in the first place. We have lots of children in this church, and I think of that as a glory to God. And he's entrusted us with much. And those who have been given much will be expected much. And therefore, we have to think really long and hard about the responsibility that we have of passing on and making sure that all of our children are part of the community of faith. And we do that through teaching. We do that through Bible learning and and modeling and so on and so forth. And prayer. Ultimately, God is the one who saves. Number two... This is why Family Discipleship at Glory of Christ exists to equip parents to disciple their children according to the biblical revelation of Jesus Christ. The mission statement reads this way because if we are going to successfully pass this on to the next generation, parents are key players in this, in this pursuit. We t- we're totally convinced as a church that the parents are the most influential theologians in the lives of their children. And we believe, more than that, that the home life, that the home is the best avenue for authentic discipleship. Because being a child of God is about the total person in all spheres of life. Moses says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And home life is really where All of life intersects, doesn't it? You can come to church and you can learn, and that's indispensable. But it's not where the rubber meets the road. Home is where the rubber meets the road. And if you read on in Deuteronomy, you will discover that God gives commands to his people, eventually, that include legal matters, that include setting up kings and government principles and marriage and all of these things. Which means that what God is trying to do in the Promised Land by his people is set up a community, a society. He's actually trying to set up a society. And thus, our family structures and Christian education must be aiming at preparing our children theologically so that they can enter in at any given point of society and contribute to establishing God's order as it is in heaven on this earth. So as a church, we are convinced that the best way for us to be effective in passing on and raising children who become part of the kingdom of God is to invest in parents and the family structure. And there, number three, I just want to point out that there is a danger here as well. just want to point out this is danger and we'll be done. There's a balance that we need to strike on family emphasis I pointed out here that the, family mean, that the family is the ideal means for building up the kingdom of God in the church. Perhaps some of you need to evaluate whether or not your family is accomplishing that goal. And to that end, I urge you to sit down and ask yourself whether or not it is throughout this week. If the structures that you have in place are actually serving the purposes of God in establishing his kingdom on the earth. And Lord willing, next week I'll spend some time drawing out the more practical matters on Deuteronomy 6. But to others, you have to make sure that you remember that the family or the households are only a means to the end. In any matter, it's easy to fall off on one of two sides, and it's really hard to get right in the middle. It's really hard to get right down the pike. Remember, Moses addresses the corporate whole of Israel in the singular, which means that he's after the whole totality of the people of God. He's after the national identity. And households were a means to that end, to establishing that. So therefore, the instructions to parents in raising their children a certain way is intended to preserve and perpetuate this identity. But the people of God as a whole, or the church as a whole, is the main thing and not the family. The family is the means to that end. So, as I wrap this up here, I just want to end with two great goals or conclusions that I come from. I said earlier that ministry and mission statements are shaped by the Word of God, and this is because I see this form and this pattern upheld in Scripture, this is the way I want to lead in this church. Number one... The goal of this ministry is to equip parents to understand that their roles, what their roles are in their families and with their children and to help them to do it well. And number two, to work towards creating a community, understanding this whole church as the larger family of God and working in that, in that, that means to establish that kind of uh, culture within this church that embraces the responsibility of passing on the faith to the next generation. And Lord willing, I will talk about some of the practicalities of the responsibilities next week that are in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. So let me pray for us as we close here. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, now that as I prayed earlier, what was of me, I pray, that it would just fall away. And I do ask, Lord, that as you have spoken through your word as I have tried my best to be faithful to what you're teaching in your word, I do ask that you would honor it and that you would accomplish in this sermon more than I could ever imagine, Lord. I pray that you would shape us as the people of God and that you would help us to steward the children that we have in our midst well. Lord, I pray that the outside nations would look upon us and they would say, their God is real and their God is good as we follow you. And I do ask, Lord, that you would give us grace now to follow you. I pray that you would give us grace to long and hunger for your word and to understand how you revealed yourself to us in it. So go with us now, Lord. I pray that you would just cause your word to accomplish the purpose that it was sent out for. And I pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.